We are closing out a sermon series this morning called Kingdom and King, where we've been discussing um, Jesus' teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. So this morning, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 29. Um, If you have your Bible with you, I'm going to ask that you turn there with us. Um, If you don't have one with you, there should be one that you can grab um, under a seat close by you. And if you don't own um, a copy of the scripture, we're just going to invite that you take that with you and keep that for yourself because we believe that everyone should have access to the scriptures. Again, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 29. And once you're there, if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you here to Providence Community Church. My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, if it's your first time, I just want to say thanks so much for joining us. We're glad that you're here. Hopefully someone's already grabbed you, share with you a little bit about who we are. And uh, we would love for you to just uh, make yourself known. Um, if you do not have a home church, we'd love for you to connect here. Should be some connect cards in the seat backs in front of you. Uh, if not, then you can go ahead and get to know your neighbor. It's probably in the seat back in front of them. And when you reach over their lap, it'll be awkward and they'll have that church moment. So you can go ahead and do that. Um, Like Lauren said, we're in Matthew chapter number 7. We're going to be in verses 15 through 29. And so we are closing out our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, We kicked off this year, January. It's crazy that we're already in April, isn't it? Um, January 1, we began in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we've been here for um, three months and kind of getting into three and a half months, walking through the teachings of Jesus' longest sermon, And some would say one of his more profound sermons in that Jesus doesn't take any breaks here. There's no dialogue here really between Jesus and a Pharisee or Jesus and a scribe. It's just straight red letters as Jesus preaches a sermon um, to a crowd that is mixed with his disciples and then just some onlookers. And so we're coming to the close of that. Uh, And I just wanted to recap briefly just how many big ideas we've gotten through. If this is your first time, or maybe you kind of came in the middle, I would encourage you, we do have our podcasts online, you can go back and listen to them, but I'm going to recap a little bit just how many big themes and big ideas we walked through. Um, Because if you have been listening to this series and haven't been stirred, or you're maybe thinking, man, how is this relevant to my life, I want to encourage you 
uh, that sometimes the things that we believe are most relevant to our lives spiritually are completely spiritually irrelevant, and things that Jesus says are always relevant. It's just a matter of whether we have ears to hear. So check out and listen to some of the things we've covered since we started Sermon on the Mount. Jesus starts by telling us that we have a spiritual bankruptcy in our hearts because of sin, and that there should be a depth of repentance and mourning that results in this, and that when we have that repentance and we look to Christ alone, that he will give us satisfaction in our souls, deep satisfaction. This is the hungering and thirsting. Not only will he satisfy our souls, but that an unbelievable fruit of a changed heart and a renewed mind happens, and then when we become citizens of the kingdom by faith, there begins to be... um, a different kind of life that we live. Here's some of the characteristics Jesus lines out in his sermon that his people should have. That we're supposed to be a merciful people, a pure-hearted people, a peacemaking people, people that are meek, loving people, not lustful people, joyful people, not angry people, covenant-keeping people, serious about holiness, serious about a pursuit of God, loving people so fiercely that even our enemies receive our prayers and our care. We're supposed to be a generous people, so generous that it casts out our anxiety. We're supposed to be a prayerful people, knocking, seeking, chasing after God. Not judgmental, but honest with each other. Humble and authentic, treating the world around us as we desire to be treated. And then Jesus says that this kind of life is going to be like salt and light in the earth. That our lives are going to be a preserving agent to a decaying world around us. That we're going to be, at some level, attractive and repulsive all at once to a world that is in darkness. That we're going to be like a lighthouse to that dark world. Shining light on areas that nobody wants like to be shined on, but also shining light so that there doesn't have to be people that continually stumble over the same things. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. They're huge themes, aren't they? These themes, like, they carry over into all sorts of things, like marital relationships, our interpersonal relationships with our, our, ourselves, our, our family, our parents, our coworkers, um, even our enemies. Uh, it goes into deep themes of forgiveness, bitterness, anger, emotions, all these things. Jesus is kind of lining out all these everyday life things that it should look like to live in the kingdom. And then this morning, he ends it by giving us three warnings. Now, before I pray, I kind of wanted to kind of frame this morning a little bit. When I was young, I remember being at my, at my grandmother's house and my dad, and you guys will probably uh, at some level track with this if you wouldn't thinking about your parents giving you warnings, but I remember my dad telling me about this little, it was a hole in the ground with like a piece of plywood that had been laid over it, but it looked like it was pretty old and shady, you know? And I remember him taking me over there when I was about Jonas's age, real small and saying, and then he got real stern with me. Do not get close to this. No matter what, don't get close to this. Do not even step around. I don't even want to see you around this thing. I remember getting like anxious as a kid. I'm like, my gosh, what's in this thing? Um, and it wasn't until years later after my dad had passed away that I was walking at that same place, and I realized the place that he was pointing, it was an old house with a well. And underneath that shady piece of plywood was an old school well that they used to drop down and actually pull buckets of water. So he didn't want me to get close to it because I'd fall into a well. And you guys can imagine, you've heard stories about this, right? That's a terrifying place to be. But I remember as a kid feeling like, man, dad, calm down, chill out. You know, we're at nanny's house. It's safe, right? It's like, what's more safe than your grandmother's house, right? You feel pretty safe around there. And I remember him being very stern about this particular piece of the property. And so with Jesus here, there's a certain tone that he carries in, in these last few paragraphs. 
and they have this kind of fatherly stern tone, one that I'm sure as a mom or as a dad, you would have if you told your little toddler who doesn't know how to swim to stay away from the pool, right? Or to stay away from the street. If you live on a street that's a busy street, and say stay away from the street, right? You have these kind of stern tone. And what it does, I don't know if it does it to you, but even when Lauren was reading, did it bring a little bit of like severity as you kind of read these texts? Watch out for the false teachers. They're like ravenous wolves. Um, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord's going to enter the kingdom. I'm going to say, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Like that brings me a little bit of gut reaction. And then lastly, there's two kind of builders. You know, you build your house on the rock and the storm's coming, everything's fine. Then there's the foolish one and great was the fall of this house. Jesus has this tone with him. But I think that the, the ultimately, just like my father, the tone was to preserve life and to bring joy, preserve me. And sometimes that's the tone that we really need to hear in order to stay away from the things that are dangerous rather than toiling with them. So what I want to do is pray that we would receive both the truth and the love from Jesus this morning. That we would hear in his words that the truth that's hard to hear sometimes brings a little like healthy fear, but that we'd receive the love that comes in these words too. So if you'll bow your heads, let me pray for us because we need that so desperately and then we'll just hop into the text. Father, thank you that your words provided for us and there's no guessing game that we have to do, but instead we can just run here and we can find truth here and hope here and peace here. And even at times we can, we can feel a sense of foreboding. And so Holy Spirit, what we ask is we humbly ask, would you take that sense of foreboding and, and even healthy fear and would you cause it to do a good work and not a work of the enemy? Would, it, would you cause it to draw us nearer to you, Lord, and not to shy away from you? And God, I ask that you would preserve life around and centered around the gospel this morning. As you give us these warnings, Jesus, give us ears to hear like your word says. And we trust you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's start with the first stanza. Jesus says this in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but the inwardly they're like ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every tree bears good, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear forth good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus starts, his first warning is this, beware of false teachers. Beware of false teachers. And, and many commentators, they kind of break this out. Is Jesus saying that we should beware of false teaching, like false doctrine, false gospels? Or is Jesus saying particularly we should beware of false teachers, the people who propagate these false doctrines? And I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says that if you, if you just single out either one of those, you're actually missing the point. The point is that both and is what Jesus is saying. Because we ought to beware of false teachers, not just because they're shady manipulators that can be abusive to the flock, but also because of the doctrine that they preach, it ultimately creates diseased fruit. Does this make sense? So we have to beware of both. And Jesus says we got to be on our guard because these people exist. And so he says, we'll know them. How will we know them? We'll know them by their fruit. Now, let's just think of those in two different categories. We have false teachers and false teaching. So on one hand, you will have to know a false teacher by the outcome of their life. This is why we know that Paul the Apostle was not a false teacher because he actually told Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words that I have given to you, that's doctrine, and mimic my outcome of life, my fruit. 
He actually encouraged his disciples, you can look at the outcome of my life, and if it does not line up with the pattern of sound words that Christ has given us, then don't follow me, but it does, so you should follow me, right? So on one hand, Jesus is saying with false teachers, you look at the outcome of their life, the pattern of their life, and does it produce the fruit of the spirit or does it produce the fruit of the flesh? And that's how you'll know a false teacher. But also false teaching has a way of outing itself. And what I mean by that is false teaching may sound good on the front end, but as it fully produces fruit, what you'll notice is that it actually gives more room for bad fruit, not good fruit. And so Jesus steps in here and says, hey, there's this glorious picture of the kingdom that I've given you. And the first warning he gives is to beware of those who will come in and they're gonna give you a message that looks like this. It has the veneer of the gospel of the kingdom, but in reality, it's actually the message of a ravenous wolf. Now that's intense, right? Can we agree? (laughs) Can we agree that most of us didn't wanna come into church this morning thinking about the fact that they're ravenous wolves that very well could be hanging out too? You think about that in Acts chapter 20, Paul tells the Ephesian elders right before he leaves, he's in tears. You know, there's this big gospel goodbye as Paul tells the Ephesian elders, I'm going to go on, I'm going to preach the gospel where Jesus hasn't been named. And then he says, fierce wolves are coming in among you. And then he says this line, some are already here. Could you imagine being in that room? It's like the room where Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And the 12 are like, not me though, right? You know? It's a scary thought. It's a foreboding thought to think that that Paul said there's already going to be ravenous wolves somewhere already among, and Jesus saying here that when you preach the gospel of the kingdom, the enemy's response to that is to plant false teachers, to plant those who might look. Jesus says they have the look of sheep because they have sheep's clothing on, but inwardly, in their hearts, they are ravenous wolves. But here's the thing. We shouldn't actually think that that's too uncommon or unlikely because think about how the Bible starts. The Bible starts with God creating Adam and Eve and then giving them commands, or let's say preaching a sermon and giving them truth. And immediately a false teacher is planted, the serpent in the garden. Satan has not changed his plans or strategies. He may have have changed his methods, but ultimately his messages have stayed the same. He comes in as a false teacher, and what Paul says is he looks like an angel of light. So he comes in, and looks like everyone else, but he brings with him false teachings. My wife and I, in our first year of marriage, we were really broke. I was a youth pastor in Beaumont, Texas. Um, if you guys, if you guys were, well, I wasn't actually in Beaumont, Texas. I was in Nederland, Texas. Anybody know where Nederland is? Okay, seven of us. That's good. In the Golden Triangle, that's where I lived, and my wife and I didn't have very much money at all. My wife was still in college. One of the promises that I made her dad uh, was that, you know, I'll support Morgan, because we got married young, 19 and 20. And so you can imagine that conversation when I ask my wife's father if I could marry her. You know, he's, at first he's just like, no, you know. <laughs> but I made him a promise. I'll support her through college because that was a big deal. And so she was like kind of, work, she worked at the buckle and like, I think she, she'd sit in for dogs. You know, we didn't have any money. And so we didn't have cable. You know, you cut all of the expenses, right? Any frills, you just cut all that out. And so what we did instead, and this will tell you, there's streaming services didn't exist. This was back when Netflix used to like send you the DVDs. You guys remember that? The little, the little paper sleeves? Okay, so we bought Planet Earth, the DVDs. And we would just watch Planet Earth every night. That's what we'd do, okay? <laughs> I kid you not, this is, this is our life. And so a few nights ago, as I was preparing for this sermon, I put on Netflix, and there's a new Planet Earth documentary called Our Planet on Netflix. You guys seen this? And we're like, yes. And so we push play on that thing, and we're just watching it. We love it. And now Jonas loves it, so we just get to engage with this. Okay, there were two parts in this, and these are very common. You guys know this if you watched any National Geographic Discovery Channel. You've seen this. There's these moments where they show, like, a predator 
after a herd of something. In this, in particular, I think it was like, I wrote this down, I think it was like wolves after caribou on one scene, and another one was like um, wild dogs after like some buffalo or like a yak or something. I don't know what it was, but it was like a herd of them. And I watched these both back to back. They were like 30 minutes apart, and I'm watching them, and I'm getting ready for this sermon. And you guys have all seen this, right? It's like the guy that's narrating, he's like, here come the wolves on the hunt. You know, it's like, doom, doom, it's real ominous, right? And like, all, always the herd seems kind of unsuspecting. They're just like walking around. The wolves are just like right around the edge. Like, this is going to go bad. And, and there's like this hunt that ensues. Sometimes it's brutal because you get like this, you know, wolf that just, I'll just go ahead for all you girls that are like, don't do this. No one doesn't, the animals don't die in either of these stories, okay? They get away. My wife hates it when they get caught, you know, and they just get devoured, and they're like, and now the circle of life continues, and then it goes to the next scene, you know. <laughs> but in these, what I started picking up on is, what are the similar qualities that you see in all these predators, whether it's wolves or the wild dogs or whatever? And, and I thought through some of these, because Jesus uses the analogy here that these false teachers are like ravenous wolves, and there was legitimately a pack of wolves after these caribou, and it was in the snow. And basically, they waited. The wolves lived in the forest the caribou were making a migration through. And so the wolves would wait and they'd get outside of the forest and make it look like the wolves were not in the forest. And then the moment that the caribou entered into the forest, here come the wolves behind them. And so they're really stealthy. They want to enter into the environment, but the environment they're comfortable with. And then they, what happens is the caribou are smart. What they do is they get into this big open field, which you might think like, whoa, open season, terrible idea. But the guy who's narrating says, no, it's actually wise. They get into this open field so they can notice and see where any actual outsiders or enemies or threats might be. And they put the weak among them and the elderly among them in the middle and then the stronger sit on the outside and they kind of graze and they look around. And here come the wolves though. And they start surrounding. Now the wolves aren't stupid either. So what do they do? They start posturing themselves and creating conditions into their advantage. They start moving around in a certain way. And they're all like in a particular way. Stronger's in a certain point, where they're gonna go. And there was always one specific way that the wolves try, or whatever predator, tries to win over or devour one of the flock. And it's, it's really simple. Separate the weak and the young from the protection of the herd. That's the goal, is they want to ultimately chase until they can take a weaker one or a younger one and separate that one from the herd so that then they can all just pray here. Because they really don't care. They, they know better than to believe they could totally devour the flock, but if they can scatter everyone, then they can isolate on someone who's kind of lagging behind, right? And so now, on the flip side, the caribou aren't stupid. They have their own thoughts too. They try to stay together. Uh, they try to get out in the open so the enemy is obvious. The parents and the strong pair with the younger to shield them. And then here's the thing, they flee and they run. A lot of them, their hope is, can I outrun the wolves? That's genuinely what they're trying to do, is just run as fast and as far away as they can. But in this one video in particular, there was this mother caribou and a little baby. And the mom would stand on the outside toward the wolves. The wolves were like nipping, but they're not really trying to get the mom. They're nipping at this baby. And this, this caribou would just knock this wolf like this. And they're running as the baby's here. And so they're just running, pursuing, pursuing. It's like this te like terrible moment, right? And then finally, when the herd is up here, the little one just makes a sprint for it. And the mom kind of lingers back and then deals with the wolf. The wolf finally gives up, and the baby makes it back to the herd. But as I was watching this, I was thinking, this is a... Perfect analogy of what Jesus is trying to tell us about how we can beware of wolves in the flock. We have to be diligent because, and this is important, false teachers are not an option, they're not a possibility, they're a reality. 
That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus wouldn't say, these are three warnings for you. They might happen. He's saying these things will happen. They've always happened. You have to be aware of it. And here's why, because two things. Number one, false teachers hurt people because bad theology hurts people. Remember this. False teachers hurt people because bad theology hurts people. So Jesus gets everything out in the open, a lot like the caribou. He gets out into the field, and here's how he does it. He acknowledges the ravenous wolves. He says, stick together. And then he says, later on in the New Testament, what you're going to find is that Paul will say, the older in the faith are meant to gather the younger in the faith. You remember that? Like in Titus, there's that conversation about, hey, the, the older women should grab the younger women. They're, listen, th that doesn't just mean in age. It means in faith, right? So it's to gather together so that there can't be this kind of picking off from false teachers. And so here's what I want to say before we move on to the second warning. Theology does matter. This is really important for us to catch. Theology does matter. You might find people that say this. If we just loved each other and stopped worrying too much about all this theology stuff, we'd be better off. And I just want to say to you that's simply not true. Because here's why. Who gets to define what loving people are if theology doesn't matter? If theology doesn't matter, then loving one another basically begins to be watered down, and we get to de decide it on our own. And if we look at, back at human history, we don't define terms very well without help. We define terms on our own terms, and then it ends up creating problems. Don't buy into the lie that theology does not matter. There is truth that is worth fighting for, and not only worth fighting for, it's essential to true communion with Jesus. Truth guides and directs our loves like the banks of a river guides and directs the streams of water. Think of this. If you didn't have banks to a river, where would it flow? It would, all the water would just, and it would become a stagnant pond. Truth gives us the boundaries through which the river can actually flow. So you might say, I want to love people, and I would tell you, yes, 1 Timothy says the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a sincere faith and a clear conscience. That's true. But if we don't have truth, then our love actually just kind of spreads everywhere, and it is not directed in any direction. We don't know what's true. We don't know who is. Like, check this out. If we're saying we want to love people, what is love? The Bible says God is love, but then what? Who is God? Well, you say, well, you know, you know Jesus is God. Okay, well, then who is Jesus? Well, you know, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Well, what does that mean? Well, now you're talking about the hypostatic union. You're doing theology, right? Because if you just say Jesus is God, but he's not man, well, then you got a, you got a problem because he was born of a virgin. And it's really important that Jesus is man also because if he's not man, then has he atoned for, the, for men like you and me and women like you and me? See, you're doing theology already. The thing is, we say we don't really like theology, but all of us are already doing it. It's just a matter of whether it's good or bad. And Jesus is saying here that we ought to be passionate about good theology. Lastly, and certainly important, is if we go back to the Old Testament and really think through what the false prophets were trying to do then, you will be more keen to see what false prophets in our day are doing now. In Deuteronomy chapter number 30, verses 15 through 20, I just want to read this really quickly. This is Moses, and think about these juxtapositions between Jesus saying this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount and then Moses saying this at the end of Deuteronomy. I think it should be put up behind me. Deuteronomy chapter 30. See, I have set before you, this is Moses to the children of Israel. I've set before you this day life and good and death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his commandments and his statutes and rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Check this out, key verse, verse 17. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but you're drawn away to worship other gods and to serve them, I declare to you today 
that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over to the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. Check this out. Moses is saying here the same thing that Jesus is saying which is false prophets have a way of turning your heart away from the living God and towards, toward false gods. And here's the thing, in a moment here he's gonna say, and they might even call those false gods Lord. Isn't that scary? So not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord's gonna enter the kingdom. That's scary, isn't it? That these false prophets, they have a way of saying what we wanna hear. Think about the Old Testament, Balaam. You know, Balaam was a false prophet in the Old Testament. Do you know what he did? He was paid by other nations in order to give Israel specific prophecies that they might want to hear. Later on, he gets paid by Israel to give prophecies. And this happens in the book of Isaiah too. These men were paid like handsome sums of money in order to give the king the prophecy that he wanted to hear. And then Isaiah or Jeremiah, these other men would come in and they'd give the prophecy that was actually from God and they'd get beaten or mistreated because they were saying the truth and the truth isn't easy to hear, right? Just as a side note, if someone tells you something and all they ever tell you is what you want to hear, you might want to think about that. <laughs> you might want to consider, because here's the truth. The truth isn't always what you want to hear, right? Like, you don't want to hear you have something in your teeth. It's true. <laughs> you know, you like that friend that tells you, because if not, you're walking around like an oaf the rest of the day. All right? Jesus here is saying, beware of the wolves, because like the Old Testament prophets, they come in and they look nice and they kind of, they spin a good jive, but ultimately they're not telling the truth. And so the last question we have to ask whenever we're talking about theology is, are we trying to please God or are we trying to please man? Let us be people that are always looking to please God. Okay, so the first one's beware of false teachers. Now at Providence, we do this thing head, heart, hands, right? If you've been in membership class, you get that. Like a disciple is thinking, uh, thinking the things of God, feeling as God feels, and then doing as God would have us do, right? That's head, heart, hands. And there was only one really true, healthy disciple, and his name was Jesus, who thought exactly as God the Father thought, felt exactly as God the Father felt, and did exactly as God the Father would have him do. And that's all of our aims. Now check this out. These warnings kind of go in that order too. The first one is head, theology. Beware the false teachers. Second one is gonna be heart. Let's read through it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast demons out in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Okay, if that one doesn't kind of give you a little pause, that's one of the scariest scriptures of the Bible, is it not? When I read that one, I kind of cringe a little bit. Because what is he saying? People like me who do religious things that doesn't immediately mean that I actually know Jesus, or more, maybe more prudently, that he knows me. Make sense? Let me tell you one story. I was gonna go to Revelation, but we don't have time. Let's do a different story. The book of Acts has this story about the sons of Sceva. You guys ever heard this story? If you haven't, it's incredible. I promise you this is in your Bible. Go back and read it. There's these men who are sons of uh, an itinerant Jewish minister, and he has seven sons. These seven sons get together and they start recognizing that Paul the Apostle has been preaching Christ and that there's power in the name of Jesus. So they get together and these seven guys start a little small business of exorcisms. I kid you not. They become itinerant exorcists. Seven guys going into places where demon-possessed people are and they start casting out demons in Christ's name. And the story goes like this, that they walk into a household at one point and they begin to cast out a demon in that household and the demon-possessed man turns to them the sons of Sceva say, 
in the name of Jesus that Paul preacheth, come out of this man. The demon-possessed man turns and says, I know, I've, heard, I've heard of Paul, and I know Jesus, but who are you? And then it says the demon-possessed man jumps on them, and it says they run out of the house naked. Now, here's the thing. If you, if you ever want to know who won a fight, if there's one guy running out naked, he didn't win the fight. Okay? That's a rule of thumb. You can take that to the bank. You know, that should be in your notes. They get beat down to the point where they don't have clothes, and they run out of the house. Now, what's the story of it? I know Jesus, the demon says, and I've heard of Paul, but I don't know who you are. These men go in with the thought that they can simply go with knowledge about who Jesus is, secondhand knowledge, the, the name of Jesus who Paul preaches, and now they can walk in the same sort of power that Paul walks in. And the problem is they have neglected to recognize the important, like the heart of Christianity is about relationship and being known by Jesus. And so these demons know that. They're coming in like, listen, you're, you're, a, you're a phony, you're a poser. You pose to be powerful, but you don't even know the Christ you're preaching. And Jesus here tells us this warning. He says there's a way to have right theology and right practice that ultimately is heartless. It's not birthed out of a love for Christ, and it's not rooted in a transformational experience that you've been forgiven and healed by the power of the gospel. There's, an, there's a way to do life like that. That Jesus says, run from that life. Run from that life. There's a way to become so habitual and religious that we mistakenly believe it starts to put God in our debt. Like where one day we're gonna stand before the throne of God and we're gonna be like, look at all that I did. See, you're gonna let me in, right? Because I've been working hard for you. And it's a lot like the older brother in the prodigal son parable. And Jesus says, reject that altogether. And here's the thing. Notice on this one, in the first one he says, this is how you're going to notice false teachers. Jesus doesn't give us an elixir here. He doesn't even give us how do we really figure out whether we're there or not. Here's why. Because it's literally impossible for anyone but you, apart from the work of discernment, for anyone but you to survey and examine your own heart. And we live in a world where nobody wants to tell anyone to examine their own heart because it's tough to think about, right? And yet the Bible is repute. It's full of times where we're called to examine our own heart and ask ourselves, are we really loving Jesus or has it become a habit of what we do, not who we are? In letter to the Ephesians that we see in the book of Revelation, and I'm not going to go there, but Jesus tells the book of, or he tells the, the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation chapter two that they have right theology and they have right practice and they were calling out false teachers. But he says, I have this against you. You lost your first love. You lost the love that you had at first. And so Jesus gives this dire warning to the church at Ephesus. He says, I want you to return back to what you were doing at first or I'll take your lampstand away from you. Or in other words, I'm gonna shut the doors on the church if you don't go back to who you were. Because there's a way for us to be doctrinally sound, all about knowing what we know and never really being known by Jesus. Application on this one's kind of tough, right? I'll just say this. Self-examination, remember where you were, and repentance, coming back humbly before the throne of Jesus and repenting of sin. Okay, number three, and this is the last one is beware of being only hearers and never doers. Verse 24, everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. 
And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Jesus attacks here the human tendency for us to intellectually ascend to an agreement with Jesus' teaching. Now this is tough for us, right? We've been through this summer on the Mount all spring. It's, it might be easy for us to say, I agree generally with what Jesus is saying. That makes sense to me. Okay, I think that's important, and it's a first step. And maybe even to experience, start to experience the power of grace by engaging with those teachings, right? So may, maybe for a moment, as, as, as Morgan and the team lead worship, you, you start to engage with that and say, wow, there's some power here. Some, there's some real, um, something happening in my heart. Jesus is saying that all of that can happen, and then you never actually do the hard work of submitting yourself functionally and your behavior's changing as you walk with Jesus. He's, and he says that there's, that's foolishness. He kind of, he mirrors King Solomon here and he juxtaposes wisdom and foolishness. He says, knowledge is good, but wisdom is better. Knowledge is knowing the right thing. Wisdom is knowledge applied, right? Parents, you know this. You're, you probably talk to this with your children all the time, right? It's one thing that they know they should put their clothes in the hamper. It's a better thing if they do actually put their clothes in the hamper, right? It's one thing if your kid knows to pay attention in class. It's a better thing if they pay attention in class, you walking with me on this? Now, you want your kids to know the why behind the what, but can we agree that in parenting, sometimes you don't have to have them know the why behind the what? You, I've heard some of you talk to kids. You've probably heard me. Whenever your kid says, why? Because I said so, okay? That's you saying, you don't have to know. <laughs> you just need to do. All right? That's the authority interchange. It doesn't mean that you never want them to know. In fact, before they leave your household, that's your goal, right? Is that you're slowly teaching them the why behind the what. But initially, when there's this authority, it's just do what has been said to do. Jesus says, many will call me Lord, Lord, but they'll never do what I have said to do. They'll even agree with it intellectually. In their heart of hearts, they'll say, I want to do it, but they'll never do it. Now, wives, I want you to look at me and listen to me. Have, is it okay with you if your husband says, baby, I know I need to love you, and I want to love you, but I just don't want to take you on a date. I want to. On Valentine's Day, if he shows up, no flowers, and says, I wanted to get you flowers. In fact, I knew I should, but I didn't. Do you say, it's okay, baby? Maybe your first year of marriage, like one of you are like, it is okay, baby. It's like, wait a little bit of time. How long before you say, sweetheart, I wanted to mow the grass, and I knew that you wanted me to, but I just didn't. Say, it's okay, your intentions were in the right place. Right? No. I, I'll just use an example from my own personal life. There's a difference between knowing that I ought to clean my gutters, which I have to do, and then recognizing that if I don't, my roof is still going to leak, and it's still going to be on me, and Morgan and I will have a conversation about that, right? <laughs> Jesus is saying here that we have to avoid this temptation to know the right things, and even in our hearts believe that we ought to do the right things and never do the hard work of looking to walk in obedience. Now, I know for some of us, we're thinking, well, doesn't that turn to legalism? Well, here's what I would say, is that notice the progression of these three warnings, right? If we're actually working on knowing that it is the right thing, knowing the truth of the, of the word, fighting against false teachers who would lie and bring us false truths, then we're working on examining the loves of our heart, the delights of our heart. No one can tell you three steps to love your spouse, right? 
So looking into our hearts and looking for the affections and then seeing, is there actually some obedience that has come along with it? If we walk in that order, then no, I don't think it can go to legalism. And that's what Jesus is saying. Friends, I think spiritually it could look like this. We can know that we ought to engage in community. We can know that we ought to develop friendships that are deep, meaningful, and fruitful. And we can even be given all the tools necessary and still never actually do anything about it. And here's what will happen is that over time we're going to make excuses as to why those things aren't happening and none of them are actually legitimate. At the end of the day, in our heart of hearts, we know we are just not walking in obedience I think for me, I'll just, I'll just tell you pastorally, when you're, when you're a pastor, there's a regularity that comes with ministry that this becomes difficult. These three warnings become really difficult for me because no matter what, there, there's an every week kind of cadence to my life of gonna be either preaching the word or submitting under the preached word with other brothers. Regularly throughout the week, there's these things that happen, these disciple-like actions that I'm taking and if I'm not careful, very quickly, I can say I know the things that I need to know, I'm feeling the things that I need to feel, and I'm doing the things that I need to do, and I can become far away from an actual vibrant, everyday walk with Jesus. And here's what I wanna say to you, is that that's a, real, that's a reality for me as a pastor, but I believe with all my heart that Jesus is saying it's a reality for all of us to do this. To begin to habitually start assuming that because we have known the right things or we feel a certain way or we're doing certain things that we're in the right place. Jesus is saying those, he's warning, he's flashing the lights at us and saying, actually examine and make sure that that's true. And I think one of the ways that we do that is we look to Christ because Jesus is the glorious truth of God. He is the love of God. He is the righteousness of God manifested in the flesh for us. Jesus is the character of God. He is the beauty of God. He is the faithfulness of God revealed to us. Jesus is the word of God, the heart of God, and the intentionality of God living among us. And so this morning, if you're in Christ, when, we, when the table is open, it's open as a reminder of the cross that gives you space and a moment for you to submit all over again to the lordship of Jesus the Sermon on the Mount finishes like this. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why were they astonished? He was teaching them with one who had authority. The table's gonna be open for us believers to submit all over again to the authority of Jesus in our lives and to do so with delight in our hearts. And this morning, if you're not sure or you're simply seeking, you're not sure if you're a Christian, rather than partaking in communion, I wanna say this is an opportunity for you to consider Christ. This is an intentional moment for you to ask yourself, is Jesus truly who he says he is here? And if so, is he worthy of my faith? And I would commend him to you as worthy of your faith. And so if you'll stand to your feet, I'd love to pray for us. And the team is gonna get up and they're gonna lead us in song. But this morning when I get done praying, the table will be open for you, for all of you who are in Christ. And also there should be some prayer volunteers that are available that you can grab hands with. Someone that you can actually, if you desire to live out this kind of community with, you can grab their hands and pray with them. So when I say amen, I wanna say you're welcome to come and take of communion. Let me pray. Father, I thank you, God, that in this place, there is safety to admit where perhaps I, I and we allow certain levels of false teaching into our hearts and lives because deep down it feels easier. 
and like in the Old Testament when the prophets said, peace, peace. It feels good to hear peace when there's war around. So God, forgive us when we have accepted a false peace. And thank you, God, that your forgiveness stands and that there's safety here. God, thank you that when our affections wane and we begin to do things monotonously, not really being known by you, that God, you continue to extend love and grace to us and that your pursuit of me and your pursuit of us has never faltered, but you've loved us perfectly even when we have been hard-hearted. And finally, God, thank you that when our obedience lags like our little children's obedience lags, that you're a faithful father who continues to bear with us. Would you produce in us repentance in our heart, God? And as we partake in the table and we take of the bread and we take of the wine, my God, may we remember the cross and all that you were willing to do to welcome us into your family. We love you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may come and take.